Good morning, I'm Pastor Mark. I'm one of the co-senior pastors with Pastor Stephanie uh, here, and it's an honor to be able to be preaching through um, some of these kind of values that as we got together with a leadership team, ministry team leaders, staff, there were these words that emerged that characterize who we see God has made our community to be, our church, and who God's calling us to become. Uh, and they definitely emerge from our, uh, uh, our knowledge of Scripture and what God has told all Christians to be, but also uh, particularly how that's emerging in our church at West Hills Covenant Church. Uh, so, so the first two weeks of the series, we talked about uh, there's two big kind of keywords in that, belonging and becoming, that, that God calls us as a church to belong to each other, to create a space of belonging, uh, and, and of course, first and foremost, to belong to God, and then becoming, that God's not leaving us as we are, although he calls us to belong as we are, but that we're becoming and we're living in more deeply to who he's made us to be, as he's restoring all things to the way that they should be. Uh, this week, we're talking about the concept and the word that emerged of genuineness. Genuine. I did my best at, I, I'm sure that uh, there might be differing definitions at differing times, but my best uh, stab at what biblical genuineness, what it means to be genuine, uh, was this, as a community, that, that as a genuine community, we're a community that offers true welcome characterized by honesty and sincerity. A community who offers true welcome, characterized by honesty and, sinc and sincerity. And as I'm uh, kind of looking through the scriptures, I'm confronted over and over again um, by the fact that you can see this, uh, this call to genuineness, uh, to true community, uh, to, to honest, sincere welcome as kind of a backbone of, of the whole story of Scripture. And so we're going to go through that a little bit. But first, I also want us to confront the fact that this isn't the way, this isn't the water that we swim in. Uh, it's not the water we swim in uh, in the world in general, and it's not the water that we swim in in the church. Uh, so, so kind of the opposite of what I would think of as community is ah, a hypocrite. And the Bible talks about this a little bit. Uh, a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion or a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. So it has, it's a, something that we seem to have an easy time identifying in others uh, and we know that we're swimming in it right? But it can be a hard, but not in the church, right? No, yes, in the church. Um, but it can be a hard thing to identify in ourselves. And if we're going to actually uh, be assured that we belong and to offer that to other people in a genuine way, then we're going to have to get over hypocrisy. We're somehow going to have to be the kinds of people that know how to unlock not other people, but ourselves, from the trap of hypocrisy. 
And I think there's hope in Scripture, and there's, there's hope, uh, but first we have to be honest about what we're facing. Um, there was an experiment in 2001 uh, where, where you would have been welcomed into a room um, just by yourself, and you would have been told, hey, we're doing an experiment where there's going to be two participants, um, but one of the participants is going to be assigned an exciting task, and there's rewards, and the other one is going to be assigned a boring task with no rewards. Um, and you, the one who's in the room now, uh, is the person who's going to assign the task. And there's a coin here with a note that says, you know, most people feel like the most fair way to assign the task is to flip the coin uh, and, and make it a random who gets assigned the boring task and who gets assigned the exciting task. And then most people who were in that position agreed and said, well, yeah, that is the most fair way to do it. But wouldn't you know that when they went to assigning that task, only half of the people, like pretty much everybody said, yes, the fairest thing to do would be to flip the coin. But pretty much half the people just assigned the more exciting task to themselves and didn't flip the coin. And then... Of the other half of the people, this was the part that I thought was the most fun. Um, the other half of the people, they, fl they flipped the coin, but of the ones that flipped the coin, 90 to 95%, the coin somehow indicated that they were the ones who would get the most exciting task. <laughs> so that leaves like a super small percentage, maybe like 5% of people who did it the way that they thought, they themselves thought, was most fair and honest. We're infected kind of with hypocrisy. And, there, and, and if we are honest, I mean, looking from the outside, I'm like, I would never do that, right? Like, I'm sure I'd be the, and then I have to kind of start to trail off and be like, really? 95, 95%, right? Like, I'm not that special. Uh, there's a lot going on with that. Um, I think when it, when it comes to hypocrisy, when it comes to not being able to live fully and honestly a genuine life, um, that, that there's one kind of other universal element that's a little bit at the root of hypocrisy. When I was in middle school, Middle school stories seem to be the most salient because I was very, uh, I don't know, inexperienced about hiding my own problems, right? So when I was in middle school, I had a crush on a girl. It was kind of the first time. I was at a new school, and I had a crush on the girl. It was kind of the first time I had the, a real major crush. And then when I was in middle school, what you do, Stephanie doesn't know. It wasn't Stephanie. I'm sorry. This is terrible. Um, Mind blown. <laughs> so when I was in middle school, what you would do is you would ask somebody out. And I'm not sure, I wasn't sure at the time what that meant, but I'm still not quite sure. It's like, hey, would you go out with me is what you say, but you're not really going out anywhere, but you're like a couple, right? And so I, there was this girl, she seemed to me to be the prettiest girl in the seventh grade. I was new to the school and kind of felt like I didn't, belong, and so I would think about this girl, Alyssa, and I had a phone in my room, and it was the one that, like, plugs into the wall first, 
And it, it had the, um, you know, you could, it was clear and you could see the mechanical things inside of it, all neon and stuff. A lot of us had that phone. So one day, after thinking about it a lot, like maybe too much, right, I picked up the phone and I called Alyssa. And I dialed up and I said, and I think I had to talk to her mom first, is Alyssa there, you know? And then I said, will you go out with me? And then click. <laughs> oh, I felt so mortified. And going to school, all I could think of my experience was shame. Shame is the fear of disconnection. That there's something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection. That's what I felt in that moment. Oh my goodness, what is it about me? Like, why would I even think to do that? And then her best friend came up to me at school the next day and said, oh, Alyssa just wanted you to know she had a call on the other line. And that was it. That was it, right? Um, but I was so vulnerable, and I felt so ashamed. And I still, to this day, when I get in touch with that feeling, I, I, I tell that story to help us. Hopefully, we have similar experiences, right? Um, where we know, uh, and we can get in touch with that feeling of like, oh my goodness, why did I ever do that? Like, what is it about me that makes me not really worthy of connection. That people aren't going to accept or love me the way that I really am. And when we feel shame, we feel vulnerable. And, and I think hypocrisy comes from the fact that we can't uh, sit in that very long. It's very difficult to sit in that very long. The Bible starts out with a story of shame. Actually starts out with a story of not shame, right? In Genesis 2.25, the famous text, Adam and his wife, so God created this beautiful world where everything was right, where everyone was in right relationship, and kind of almost like one of the culminating lines of that section before there's a fall was that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They're totally free with each other, and there's no shame uh, in their place with each other, with God, and with creation. Uh, and then comes the downward spiral that I think we're still experiencing. I'm going to read some from after uh, Adam and Eve ate from the fruit that God told them not to eat from. Here's the series of events. And I'll leave that up as I go through. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He's shamed. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And shame, that vulnerability, there's something about me that's going to cause me not to belong, not to be worthy of being accepted, goes so quickly to blame. 
the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then God says to the woman, what is it you've done? And the woman said, no, the servant deceived me and I ate. The, the shame leads to this blame. The blame is kind of this hypocrisy. Um, Adam was right there when the fruit was, was being eaten. Uh, and he, he didn't object. Uh, he participated. It goes to blame and then hypocrisy. It's like, no, I would have never done that except for somebody else did it. Uh, and, and that shame and blame and hypocrisy leads to isolation. And I think we see that uh, throughout Scripture. There's isolation and there's damage that's caused. And when, you, when we think back to the root of it, it's that we are desperately afraid that we don't belong. We're desperately afraid that we don't belong. Blame, uh, actually, in some of the, um, the psychology of blame and hypocrisy, uh, there's actually research that says that, uh, that, that blame, like putting a moral, um, like morally censuring somebody else, like saying, oh, what that person is doing is bad, actually signals virtue in a way that's stronger than just doing the right thing. So... So that we perceive each other. I'm more if you sit, if you tell me that somebody else has done something bad, I'm actually more likely to perceive you as good than if you had just done the right thing and not blamed anybody else. And so there's ways that we hack into each other for a sense of belonging that we say, oh, you know what's gonna help people make me accepted and make people believe that I'm good is if I blame this other person. If I show how bad these other people are then I am going to find a place of belonging. Maybe we can do that together, right? And some church communities, like, it, it can, that temptation is so fierce that we can become that all together. Like, those people outside of the church, like, they're the blame. Or that other group, that other kind of church that does things differently than we are, they're the ones to blame. And so we puff ourselves up, we give ourselves a sense of belonging by condemning other people. But that is not the key to genuine community. And the Bible, as God's restoring all things, as God's restoring all relationships, there's a consistent thread of God interrupting this cycle, this downward spiral of shame, blame, hypocrisy, and isolation. It includes things like confession, lament, simplicity, secrecy, and forgiveness. And it leads to a community that's created with contagious sense of belonging. I think the most genuine expression of who we're made to be is people who have a contagious sense of belonging. And I see that in this community. I see the seeds of it here, right? We have to be honest about the challenges we face. Um, but to, to call out, God is doing, through God's spirit, a work of creating a community that's genuine, that has this contagious belonging. And there's, there's some ways that we see over and over again uh, that God is doing this through the story of Scripture. Uh, the first 
is confession. Jesus tells this story. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up from the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the Pharisees were supposed to be the ones who did everything right. They got all the laws right. Uh, the tax collectors were the ones who had betrayed the Jewish people uh, and usually cheated the, um, the people, uh, their own people to make a good living and to give money to the Roman Empire. So the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There's a powerful aspect, uh, there's a powerful dynamic of the practice of confession. To subvert this isolation that we do to each other and this hypocrisy. When we're a confessing community, uh, when we confess that we don't have it all together, when we're aware that we're sometimes hypocrites, uh, when we're aware that we need to grow and we're able to bring that to God and to each other, then we short circuit uh, through the Holy Spirit uh, this downward spiral. In Psalm 51, there's this beautiful model of confession and prayer where David says, have mercy on me, God, according to your great compassion. Cleanse me from my sin, create in me a pure heart, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. There's these models of confession and repentance that are met with acceptance and belonging. A simplicity is another practice in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, uh, in his teaching, says in Matthew 5, 37, all you need to say is simply yes or no. He's talking about oaths. You don't have to give these long, elaborate oaths, like this is why you have to believe me, by the, by the grave of my mother. and by the like. You, we know that when the more people try to convince us of their trustworthiness, the less trustworthy they are, right? You know, like, would I lie to you? When somebody says, would I lie to you? Your radar is up, right? And Jesus is saying, like, look, just be simple. That's going to be enough. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more comes from evil. It's part of this downward spiral where we have to puff each other up. Uh, In Matthew 6, 1 through 4, Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. This is the secrecy part. To be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward. So he gives a bunch of examples, but the first one is when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the streets. Right? Your secrecy, your practice of doing good in a way that doesn't win you belonging from other people is a way that you short-circuit in your heart that downward spiral of isolating each other and isolating yourself. All of these practices 
are things that we can do that, that exercise that muscle, that start to work out what God is working in. It starts to express what the Spirit uh, is bringing up in us, our genuineness. But the root of all of this has to be an encounter of actual, true, and real belonging. You know, we can't really muster it up that I can say, oh yeah, like, I just, I just don't need you to think well of me. Like, our, when we stand in our shame, like, we're going to clothe ourselves with something, right? And Jesus comes into the scene with radical forgiveness and radical belonging. I think one of the best examples of this is the story of a Samaritan woman that Jesus meets. Jesus is, is headed on a trip, and he's going through Samaria, which is a place where Jesus wasn't supposed to go. You're not supposed to go. Samaria is where the bad people are. They don't worship right. Uh, they've kind of betrayed God. And you're not supposed to go through there if you're a Jew, especially if you're a Jewish teacher. And if you're a Jewish man, you're not supposed to talk with women anyway. So Jesus is going through Samaria, and he sees a woman who's at a well in the middle of the day, uh, which is not the time that people go to the well, and nobody goes to the well alone. And normally, everybody in the town, the women would go to the well in the beginning of the day, and they'd get the water for the day. But this woman is isolated. She's cut off from her community. She's there at the well alone. And Jesus comes and strikes up conversation. Jesus asks her for a drink. Jesus creates a place where she belongs. The Samaritan woman's curious about this. She's asking, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus tells her, I have something to offer. If you knew who I was, you would have asked me. I would have given you living water. I actually have something to offer you. They talk about uh, the well a little bit. Jesus talks about the water of eternal life, that there's something really good that he has to offer. And then she says, yeah, give, give me that. Uh, give me that water of eternal life. And Jesus, it's, this, this strikes me as kind of mean, he says, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replies. Jesus strikes right to the core of this woman's shame. Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. Uh, that actually would refer to that she has somebody else's husband, um, kind of by the culture and customs of the time. It's not that she was just with somebody before she was married, but that she was actually with somebody else's husband. And he says, what you say is quite, quite true. So Jesus exposes the shame of this woman in a way that, uh, that, that all of us probably can realize is super risky, is super vulnerable. But at the same time, this woman is asking for the water of eternal life. There's almost, uh, 
this, this assumption that the way to eternal life is not around our shame. It's not papering over our shame. That the way to eternal life is through our shame. That we don't have all the life, we don't have all the genuineness that God wants to give us if we're going to segment out certain aspects of our shame, our fear of not belonging, the wrongs we've done. And Jesus wants to pour eternal life into all of this woman. And it goes straight through her shame. She diverts. I see you're a prophet. She gets in an argument about where the right place to worship is. But when it comes down to it, she's receiving from Jesus. And Jesus tells her that he's the Messiah. She says, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town where presumably she's had five husbands, where she's with somebody else's husband, where she's not allowed to go get water with the other women. She went back to that town and said to the people, the people that despised her, the people that knew her shame and isolated her for it, she said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out and they made their way towards him. And later many of the Samaritans, it says, uh, from that town believed because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. There's this confession, there's this point where this woman's shame is exposed and she has nowhere to go. It's met with the forgiveness of Jesus. It's met with this, um, that, that he knew about it before. He knew about it when he offered eternal life, eternal belonging. And that she believed this is the Messiah, that the Messiah, the one sent to save us, to redeem all of creation, is okay with me, is here to, to make me a part of what's going on. And so the result is that not only does she have a sense of belonging and of freedom and of receiving forgiveness, but immediately it overflows to other people. Immediately it overflows so that the belonging doesn't just end with her, but it becomes contagious into her community. And gosh, can you imagine being so isolated in, in a community uh, and then all of a sudden being the agent for transformation? It makes me think about how over and over again I find myself, when I'm having relationship, relational problems, right? When I'm, having, uh, when I'm feeling disconnected, there's usually this sense of like, man, maybe I don't really belong. Maybe they don't really like me. That can happen anywhere. That can happen. I'm the pastor of this church. I obviously have a part of belonging. But I can still feel like, oh man, 
maybe I don't belong. And then I have less contagious belonging to offer, right? Because I'm thinking about protecting my shame. I'm not thinking about the fact that you need to know that you're welcomed and belong. Right? We do that. And so it's, it's through these disciplines, it's through this continual flow of bringing ourselves as we really are, shame and all, before God, really experiencing God's forgiveness and believing that we belong no matter what, that we always will, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. These things that we sing about God, when we actually believe those things, we're freed to be genuine. I don't think there's any other way to do it. Like, we're freed to be genuine. And it's easy to lose track of that, to be like, oh, yeah, I did that in 98, you know? Like, um, but, but for that pride, um, yeah, thank you for sharing so vulnerably, Irene. You know, that pride can sneak up, right? And all of a sudden, we find ourselves isolated, uh, not offering the love of God. Uh, and, it's, and it's because we quit dealing with our, our shame and our need for forgiveness and our need to just affirm, like, we do belong. God says we belong, and I'm okay with that. And when we do that, we can offer it to others. We have the opportunity for this life-changing experience of community that's based in God saying that we belong. And we have the opportunity to dig into that more deeply together. To be the kinds of people that are so sure that we belong that we can offer it freely to others. It reminds me, I, I'm going to, one more quick story. When I was, there was one time I really felt like I belonged. I was in high school. So in middle school, like I didn't fit in at all. And then in high school, I was in a tiny little Christian private high school. And I was, in my senior year of high school, I was like the student body president and captain of the football team. And I remember that year, I came in as the student body president with a shirt uh, the, from Toy Story that says, you have a friend in me, right? And I had to give a speech. And my first speech was like, hey, if anybody wants to talk, like if anyone wants to hang out, like I'm here for you, right? I was... I, I was extending belonging so much, and I realized looking back, like, oh yeah, I'm able to do that because I felt like I belonged. When you're afraid you don't belong, you can't do that. But when you feel like you belong, you can extend it to everybody else. And the, the challenge is to be a community that reinforces that to each other, reinforces God's acceptance and belonging and forgiveness to each other, um, but also to individually in those moments of doubt, to be in touch with, man, you know what? Even if they don't get me, like, I'm okay because God says I'm okay. To have that deep experience with the Savior who says, no, you do belong. So, so I can take those risks. I can expose my shame, my, my tough, my rough edges. I can admit that I'm wrong. I don't have to blame other people, whether they're inside the church or they're in the White House. Like, I don't have to blame other people um, to give myself a sense of belonging. It doesn't mean that I can't participate in democracy and have my opinions or whatever it is, or, or that I don't have anything to say in anything. But I, I don't need to use that. I don't need to use blame to make me belong. I belong because God says I belong, and I can extend that to anybody and everybody. 
We need that rootedness when there aren't guarantees for how it plays out to just be genuine, to just be who we are. And when we take that risk, we depend on God, we depend on the Holy Spirit over and over again, we become that place of contagious belonging. That's what the church is supposed to be. Spiraling up into eternity. This acceptance, this love, an embrace, a real experience of belonging. And when we're feeling that, we're, we're feeling, you know, th- those th- the, that shame and that isolation, we're feeling like those are super important. Those can derail our community, right? Those can derail our, our personal lives and that flow of living water that God wants to, to flow through us. And so we can pay attention to those together. We can confess those together. We can restore uh, what God's intended, a place where we care for each other, where we have genuine community, genuine belonging. I'm excited uh, for next week uh, to explore. So we're trying to do two, two parts of each of these sermon uh, ideas. And the first is the, the biblically rooted part. So we're talking about now with the biblical foundations. But like, what does that look like exactly at West Hills, right? Like, what does it look like? It made me think, like, that moment where I, like, picked up that, like, phone, oh, the phone of vulnerability, you know? Right? Like, that moment where you don't know how it's going to work. Like, I should probably have this conversation with somebody. Like, I'm led I'm led to, to either confess a way that I know I might have messed up or or I need to just have a genuine conversation with somebody, and I, and I don't know if it's going to leave me feeling just more exposed and isolated, or if it might lead to, to some connection, right? Like, like so I think Stephanie's going to be, we're going to be exploring that, like, what are those moments that we're called into practically, and what does it look like? And hopefully uh, this kind of reverberates in our thinking this week and God's leading us. Like, what, is it, what does it look like to take that step that says, yeah, normally I, I wouldn't try to make this connection um, because I'm worried if I fit in or if I have a place to say or if I have a place to, to belong. Uh, where's God calling us to in love and with a sense of belonging to be genuine, to be our real selves and, and to unlock Uh, a welcome and contagious belonging. Let's pray. God, would you, would you make us astounded of your goodness? Man, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we, have a hard time imagining that you love us as we are. That there's no shame, there's nothing that we've done or are or feel or think or have thought that can separate us from your love, from belonging to you. There's areas that we've opened to that and there's areas we've closed to that. Would you continue with your spirit to drill into our hearts, uh, into our minds, 
uh, new wells where your uh, springs of living water can flow into. New places that are open to being touched by your love, your grace, your assurance that we belong to you. Would you challenge our thinking in a way that makes us contagious in the way we offer belonging? In Jesus' name we pray.